here's my secret thing right here. And this box is a secret thing. You like to spit on your mask, don't you? Yeah, me too. All right. So y'all can, yeah, gather around. Gather around the good stuff. That was some commercial. Come on up, guys. Okay, I have a question for you all. It's a really important question. What is your favorite miracle that Jesus did for other people? What do you think? Yeah, go for it. The one your mom made? No. Oh, the miracle of giving your mom, you to your mom. That's true. You're a pretty awesome miracle. You know? You know what? I'm going to steal that one. I'm going to tell my mom the greatest miracle she's experienced is me also. What else? Go for it, Maite. When he took away our sins. That's pretty awesome. What else? Go for it. That he made your dad better? Well, that's an amazing miracle. The healing power of Jesus? Yeah. That he died on the cross for our sins. That he died on the cross for our sins. You guys are so good. Go for it. That my mommy made me. That your mommy made you. You know, it's an incredible miracle, and you can see it in ladies all over this room, of like God making people inside of our mommies. It's pretty amazing. Uh, it's... It's kind of weird, but amazing. That's great. So my favorite miracle, uh, or one of my favorites, you guys were awesome because you believe in miracles today. Because you Go for it, True. What's your favorite miracle? He made us all friends and not mean to each other. That is another great miracle. Yeah. So you guys are great because you're thinking of God being active in our world today which is great, because I thought you were going to answer all these Bible nerdy questions. <laughs> My favorite miracle from the Bible, because all those are really great too, is uh, the miracle, and it's a really strange one. You might not think of it as a miracle, but when Jesus made disciples, you're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. What? There's no like big miraculous thing happened right there. You think it's a good one? Thank you. You are so kind. You are your parents' son. Thank you. You see, think it's the awesomest one? I think so too, because what Jesus did, there's just fishermen. Do you all remember the fishermen? And they're just doing their thing, and then Jesus comes and he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. What? And you know what's interesting about that is that's the miracle that, G that God is always doing. God's always saying, Hey, I'm going to make something. He says he's going to make something, and then he makes something. Like when God made the world, he said, I'm going to make the ocean, and then he made the ocean. He said, I'm going to make the people, and then he made the people, right? That's how God always works. <laughs> and he said he's going to make pianos. So there's a story in Jeremiah where, uh, where God gives us a picture of what it's like to be one of his disciples. Uh, what he says is that God is like an artist who's making clay, or who's working with clay to make something. And the artist might say, I'm going to make a bowl, you know, but like a really pretty bowl, or a really pretty cup. Something that's... Like a pretty cup and bowl. I know. I have some cups that are like bowls. And, the, and he made the earth. 
I know, but what he said is, he's like, God is like that, like your toes. I do love your toes. And he said, he got some clay. He said, God's like an artist that has clay. And then he's going to put his fingers in it, and he's going to mold it, and he's going to shape it, and he's going to make it into exactly what he intends. And so I think one of the biggest miracles that God does is he makes us into something, that he changes us. Isn't that pretty amazing? Can you say... Jesus changes everyone? Say it. Jesus changes everyone. Everyone, there you go. And that's what And that's what Jesus did with his disciples. When they began to follow him, right away they were Jesus' helpers. But then they kept being changed over and over again. And then after several years, they kept getting changed. Even at the very end of their lives, they were still being changed and shaped. It was like God, the potter, was still molding and shaping them. Like an artist who says, I'm never gonna be done with this painting. I'm just gonna keep working on it because you are gonna be amazing and beautiful. He always finishes what he says. Yeah, he always finishes what he says. And so I want you, you guys can take a couple of these, I think. You can take, t oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that miracle of kindness is disappearing. Okay. There you go. Okay. Oh, Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. You, two, two, two. Okay, okay. Okay, does everyone have a couple? Except for Matthew. Do you like green? Do you like purple? Do you want purple and gold? You do, don't you? You take these two, purple and gold. Go Lakers. Awesome. So, you only got like three. I know, it's tough. So I want you guys to, go, you go back, did, did Sally get one? We have a couple here. Lucy, did you get one? Oh my gosh. Here, can I have one of yours? Yeah. There we go. So, so all through while I'm preaching, I want you guys to be making something like an artist, okay? And then at the end, you can show everybody, like whenever we're just hanging out, you can go up and be like, this is what I made. All right? That's great. So you guys go back to your parents and, uh, and make something. Sorry? Oh, okay. Awesome. That was an adventure. Yay. So that is what, uh, I'm going to take this off now. Uh, so that is what this sermon uh, today and what this passage is really about is how Jesus uh, is doing a miracle in our lives and transforming us even now. And this is for adults to get in on the action. Can you say, Jesus is doing a miracle in my life? Jesus is doing a miracle in my life. Awesome. I we're going to become that kind of church. You just wait. Okay, so Romans chapter 7. This is the, the passage today. It's Romans chapter 7, verse 14 uh, to 25. Uh, you'll remember, if you were here last week, this is the same part of the passage here. Uh, but it's, it's so good for us, I think, to really dive into this question of how is Jesus forming me even when it feels like nothing has happened, even when it feels like I'm completely stuck. So Romans 7, 14 says this. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, 
But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I ha- what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, or does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a great, deep, personal confession from the Apostle Paul. Uh, If you uh, remember, if you're like one of those Bible nerds who understands all the characters, Paul is probably one of the most important people in the life of the whole church outside of of Jesus, just the, the fierce fact that he was part of all of these journeys and all of these teams all over the the European world, Uh, the the letters that he wrote, the theology he wrote, he was such a rich, important person that you might even think super mature, he's growing up, he must be getting more and more free from sin. But what's telling about this confession is, and it shows us just so remarkably, is that he never graduated from struggling with sin. At this point, he was an amazing leader, a Christian leader, and yet he still is saying, I struggle so deeply with sin. Uh, He's not saying, hey, you people, I know there's some people in some churches who still struggle. He's saying, no, no, we all do. And one of the things that this passage just tells us is that no one gets so advanced in the Christian life that they no longer see their sin. That no one gets so Uh, spectacular in their times of prayer or their obedience or their faithfulness or just sheer number of years following Jesus in which they no longer see their sin. In fact, I think the opposite is true, is that the sign of a mature, growing person who's dedicating their life to following Jesus, the more you do that, the more readily you see your own sin. So a sign of maturity is not one who says, man, I just don't struggle with stuff anymore. But a sign of maturity is is someone who says, no, no, I still see it even more clearly than I did before. It also tells us that no one gets so advanced in the Christian life that there's no longer any struggle with sin. Where it says, yeah, I see my sin, and then bam, it's dealt with. I, I thought the right thoughts, I prayed the right prayers, and now I no longer struggle. No, Paul is talking real time as he writes this beautiful theological letter saying, I do what I don't want to do. I do the very things that I hate. I wake up at at night and I'm saying, I don't want to do that anymore. Then the next day he does it. Paul writes, although I want to do good, evil is right behind me. 
The idea of, of a child or a kid running away from a tiger that's on the prowl, chasing him everywhere he's going. But sin, I just want us to know, does not have the first word. Sin is not the first word in your life. And sin is not the final word either. This passage is, though it talks about confession, is not about sin. It's about how we become holy through our struggle in the power of the Spirit. How we defeat sin in our own lives. How Jesus is doing and will do a miracle in you. That he's transforming you. That he's breaking chains. That he's opening doors that you might walk into wholeness. This is what this passage is about. How do we think uh, we get transformed and we get over sin? I think a lot of us probably think, uh, if you're like me, that what it takes to get over sin is to work harder and to work better, or to work harder and smarter. That if we could put those two things together, that we, if we could engage in some deep, vigorous discipline, you know, we see a sin and we, we download an app, we create a Google Calendar series of invites, uh, we show up more often to worship gatherings, we go on diets, we download new workout apps, we delete other apps, you know, like that's how we do it. If you work harder, if you work smarter, if you work, you know, better and you read more books and those sorts of things, then the struggle will just go away if we just, you know, dig deep. Uh, you know, I can even just speak from my own life. I think, you know, I remember just in college where I said, I'm not going to look at bad stuff on the internet anymore. Done for it. So I downloaded some stuff on my computer. I created these networks of accountability. I started working out and all of those sorts of things. And it was like, great, I've defeated sin once and for all. Now I'm a mature person. Except then I just, just binge eat through my shame and struggle. So then I said, oh, now I'm gonna go on a diet. Now I'm gonna download some more apps that are gonna keep track of how much food I eat and those sorts of things. And then I say, well, that's working out well, but now I'm obsessively shopping and buying new things. I'm gonna put that away and delete those things. Then I'm obsessively addicted to Instagram or getting people on Twitter to click a little heart button because it will somehow feed the pit within me. And once I shut all of that stuff out, and once I get to the very end of working harder and smarter and better, all I'm left with is still my anger, my sadness, my wounds, and my lusts that just can never find satisfaction. Here's the sad truth that Paul is pointing out right here. The sad truth is that our hearts are vending machines. And they, they're just vending machines that will find new ways of expressing our inner brokenness. Because see, the, the, the problem that I have, and the problem that you have too, is that you go to the vending machine with a thirst, with a lust, with a desire. You're parched. And you say, I want to I drink something, right? That's why you go to a vending, back in the day when they had them. I guess that's what you do on Postmates now. Like, I'm thirsty. I'm going to get this. Anyway. This vending machine, if you show up to the vending machine, it's like, oh, all the Coca-Cola sold out. I guess I'm no longer thirsty. No, you still put your dollar in, and then you just push regretfully Sprite. Like, I guess I'll have that. It's almost a real drink. Or you, you, 
on the really desperate points, if you get rid of Sprite and Dr. Pepper and Coke, then maybe you will push so sadly the button Minute Maid orange juice. You're like, oh, that stinks. And then if that is out and you still go to the vending machine and you're still thirsty, you're still going to push the button that says Dasani water and you're going to pay for something that's freely available from the world. Where there's something next to it that's just a free drinking fountain, you're still going to purchase the water. Because that's why you went there to begin with. And our hearts do not find satisfaction in anything. Even if you shut off one thing, something else springs up. Working harder and smarter and better just doesn't make us whole or holy. So if that doesn't work, I think we say, maybe I can run from it. Maybe I can escape it. Maybe it's this apartment. If I had a different apartment or different house, then I could get out of it. Maybe it's this job. If I didn't have this job, that's what's causing me to sin. It's this work. Maybe it's these relationships and these friends that I'm with. If I could get out of those relationships, then, then I could be free of sin. They just keep making me sin. Maybe it's this city. Maybe it's this state. Maybe it's this theology that I've been reading. Maybe it's even this church. If I could get out of this church, and I'm sure you're not thinking that, but some church out there, you know, maybe you're stuck in in the past. Maybe that's how you ended up here. If I could get out of that church and get a new church, then I wouldn't sin anymore. If only I could escape. As someone who's moved a lot, uh, this is the really terrifying part about moving. When you show up to a new space, they open up the moving truck, and all of your junk came with you. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't get left behind. It's all there. I remember when we moved to Portugal, all we took was like 12 suitcases. You open those suitcases, you're like, yep, still my junk. It travels with you. It's like Paul says, evil is right there behind me. And even though we run from places and relationships and things, it's always behind us. But Jesus, core to his very nature, to his identity, part of what it means for him to be God is that he always deals with sin. Jesus never runs away with it or runs away from it. Jesus deals with sin. He doesn't squirm. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't shriek when he's confronted with our sin. No, Jesus always carries it. This is what we believe fundamentally. This is our fundamental theology. That as Jesus walked up the mountain to Golgotha, he was carrying a cross on his back. But he was carrying so much more than just wood and nails on his scarred back. He was carrying all of your shame. He was carrying all of your wounds. He was carrying all of your addictions, all of the unresolved father issues, all the unresolved mother issues, all of your family placement and birth order issues, everything, all your sickness, all the idols that you've created or that you worship or that you will create and worship. He carried it all on his back to the cross. Our struggle with sin does not mean that the cross didn't work. We often think, oh, because I'm still sinning, surely it just didn't take. Sin uh, shows that the cross didn't work. 
No, all it shows is that the cross is so much bigger than we first thought in the very beginning when we thought, oh, this sin is just a small thing. But as you grow up into maturity, you see, oh no, the sin that Jesus carried was so much bigger than I could imagine. The cross was heavier and he took it all. Our ongoing cycle with the struggle of sin isn't a sign that the resurrection was feeble. That man, when Jesus came out of the the empty tomb and out of the grave, I guess it wasn't powerful enough for my struggle with sin. No, no, it's just an example that Jesus has more and more graves to raise you out of. And here's the thing, Jesus is up to the task of lifting you out of the grave again and again. He's up to the task of carrying your sin and your cycles of sin again and again. And so much more, he is capable of actually healing the wounds that are deeply inside of you that feed those sins. The God who walked out of the grave will carry you out of the cycle of sin too. There was this moment I'll never forget in my own personal life when I began to surrender to the transformation that Jesus had for me. Uh, I was in a Saturn View. Saturn Views are really cool cars that they don't make anymore. Uh, the commercials and the salespeople, even they would kick the car and be like, see, it doesn't, it doesn't scratch or get broken. That, if you're buying a car, and that's the main thing that they have, the main feature is that if you kick it, it doesn't break, uh, you should buy a different car. But I was in my Saturn view, and Miral and I had been doing marriage counseling, and each week that we would go there and be there, I would leave realizing, I guess my personality doesn't work. I guess my whole way of viewing the world doesn't work. I guess the ways that I solve problems and, and process all information, none of that works. Everything that I try to do out of love is not love. And I came to this moment, she went into the house after we had gone through this time, and I can remember hitting the steering wheel and begging and pleading and then finally saying, God, you must change me. You have to change my personality. You have to change the way that I think. You have to change the way that I live. You have to change the practices. You have to change my work habits. You have to change all of me. The making of us whole, that process of transformation, begins with that desperate cry of discouragement. And we often want to run away from discouragement. It's like, that's no good. Let's not be discouraged, right? But the the discouragement sometimes and oftentimes is a sign that our souls are working. Our souls are saying, I cannot find rest until I find rest in the one who made me. This desperate cry of saying, all right, no more pretense, no more puffing up, no more trying to hold it together. Just the confession, I am needy and I can't. I am needy and I can't. In confession, we bring sin to light. Sanctification, this process of being made holy, always happens in the light. Often we're trying to grow up and become holy, living in the shade and in the darkness. 
as a gardener, I just want to tell you, nothing truly fruitful grows in the darkness. What grows in the darkness is mold and bacteria and, you know, some feeble plants that just die on the ground. If you want to be made whole and live, it starts with a confession, sin being brought to the light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, the pious or the super spiritual community permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his own sin from himself and from the community so that we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is, we are still sinners. You don't experience transformation on this gentle growth curve of making incremental upgrades to become a little bit and a little bit more holy. It doesn't work that way. It takes all of you. It truly takes all of you. It requires an emotional sanctification, that the, that the spirit would actually transform how we process life and how we deal with our anger, how we deal with our shame, how we deal with our happiness and joy. There has to be a renewal of our emotions. There has to be a sanctification of our relationships, that God changes how we're relationally connected to other people, that through the power of the gospel that we might have friendships that are more deep and more sincere, but also that we would relate to each other differently. It's a relational sanctification. It also takes us physically. It's a physical transformation that has to take place too. What we desire and what we do with our bodies and how we treat our bodies and how we treat other people and how we carry space it takes all of you, even a spiritual sanctification that transforms how you relate to God and how you worship things and how you ultimately worship Jesus. And in all of that, all of that sanctification is visible. People will see. If you surrender, as I did in that moment in the car and as I continually have to do, if you surrender to God making you whole, it will be visible to people around you. And not in a sweet, nice, packaged up present on a Christmas day where you get to say, I got this new thing. No, it will be visible in the most unruly of ways. But God's deliverance moves forward only through a surrender that Christ is above and we aren't in charge anymore that we're not even in charge of our own transformation. We say to God, I'm not leading this self-improvement plan anymore. You must take me, you must mold me, you must shape me. Just as the kids are doing with their clay right now, or if they've already surrendered to throwing it at each other's siblings, you're finished. Uh, God, we have to surrender to being made whole and beautiful and our intended purpose. There's this uh, really great book called The Grapes of Wrath. I don't know if anyone's read it. It's really long, uh, but it's great. It's about this family that is stuck in Oklahoma. They're, they're 
farm has been taken over by the banks. They're plowing through their house as they pack up all of their possessions. They have nowhere else to go. They have this old beat up truck. They slaughter a pig and that's all the food that they have. They salt it down. They're all getting ready to leave in this huge truck that they've just sort of overflowed with people and possessions. And then as they're getting ready to leave and as they get down the road, the grandfather who this whole time of preparation has been talking about all the grapes of California. I can't wait to eat those grapes and drink the orange juice. He's just so excited the whole time. But as the car begins to move, as it begins to rustle down the highway, he, he says, I will not go. And he tightens his fists, he clenches his teeth, he literally digs his heels in as they try to drag him onto the path of going to California, and he says, I will not go, I will not leave. And then the grandfather dies on the side of the road. The most I grieve as a pastor, and I, and I grieve because we all grieve, like grief is like part of human life. But the most I grieve is not like when people leave the church or when people move away, or when people come up and say, hey, you're just not doing a good job. Like that time Noel told me that. It didn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> uh, no, no. My deepest grief, the most sadness that I have, is when I see people tighten their grip on their own lives, and they clench their teeth, and they refuse to move forward on the path that God has for them. They refuse to be changed by God. They say, I will go no further. And that, just to be totally honest, is when I weep for people. I don't weep often, but that's when it happens. That the love and the power to make them whole is being poured out on them. And yet they sit down and they say, I will go no further. I will not surrender my life to his transformation plan for me. I will have my own. He can run some stuff by me, but I'm ultimately the one that has the final say. And I just want to ask you this question. Are you prepared to be transformed by Jesus? Are you prepared to surrender to that? And I plead with you, genuinely, this is me pleading, that you would answer yes. That you would say, I don't want to be in charge of how I'm made new. I want Jesus to be the one who carried it all, the one who rose from the dead. I want him to be in charge. That your answer would be, yes, Jesus, cleanse me, refine me, make me whole. That's the, the crucial question that precedes all the important stuff or the other important things of spiritual disciplines and how are you going to structure your life and how are you going to have accountability, all that stuff is super good. So it's not like we shouldn't try at all. But the first question is, are you willing to have Jesus say, I'm in charge now. I am the captain of how you will be changed. Are you prepared to have the Spirit mold you and shape you? to do that miracle in your life. This next chapter of Romans that we're going to start next week, Romans chapter 8, 
we're actually going to spend like two months just in that one passage because it's about how the Spirit makes us alive, not to sin, but alive to God and what he is doing. And so the question you have to ask first, that's what Paul's led us to, is are you at the point where you will say, I am in need, who will rescue me? Thanks be to Jesus that rescues me still. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the, the beauty of the cross, uh, that we get to look at the cross year after year and say, he's added stuff. You know, he's taking more and more of my sin. Jesus, I thank you for the resurrection, that, that you will raise us out of the grave. There are parts of our lives that are dead to sin, and yet you will still raise those too. Jesus, I thank you abundantly uh, for the privilege it is to worship you and to proclaim truths to one another, uh, to hear how the Spirit is moving. Um, I pray that we will be refined as a church, that you will prune us, that you will make us fruitful, that you will make us alive uh, to your Spirit and how it's working in our midst. We just want to say definitively, Jesus, you are in charge of this body. You are in charge of everything that happens. You are in charge of how you're making us holy. We are not. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.